All right. This is the second episode of the podcast. Uh, we're kind of deciding on names right now, whether we want to be Jokers of the Squared Table or maybe something like uh, Down the Rabbit Hole or The Rabbit Hole or something like that. Yep. So we're in works to see uh, where that goes exactly. Um, if you all listened to the last episode, we, we started with a history of baseball, made our way up through about 1900 with some yep. of the key people there. We figure this time we're going to try to make it, we were going to try to go to 1950, and that's just a lot of... That's not happening. Yeah, there's a lot of history in there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get up to like 1930. Yeah, I got 12 pages of notes before 1920, so had to cut the, draw the line somewhere. <laughs> uh, so I guess the, the best place to start is uh, right about the 1900, I guess. Did you find any kind of information on the formation of the American League or I was leaving that to you because you All said right. you had 12 things of notes alright good because <laughs> I got it um, so the American League so there was uh, this fella his name was Byron Bancroft Johnson Every- Byron Bancroft Johnson yep everybody called him Ban Johnson um, he took over one of the minor leagues in the country at the time, uh, the Western League in 1894. So we're going just back just a tidbit. Okay. Just a bit here. Um, and 1900, he changed the name to the American League, and he wanted he saw it as his opportunity to challenge uh, A.G. Spaulding's National League. If you remember from the last episode, that's Albert Goodwill Spaulding. Um, at first, the National League ignored him, said, ah, you're small potatoes. You ain't got nothing on us. Um, uh, the in, the National League ended up dropping four teams shortly thereafter, and the AL uh, started "quote unquote" replacement teams. Okay. Essentially, it's they started replacement teams in the same cities and hired the players that were just let go by the NL. So essentially, they came in and scooped up the team that had just been let go from the NL. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, clever. Very. Really clever. And uh, Ban Johnson goes on to to play a big role in baseball history. He's a very, very smart businessman. Um, So a little bit of difference between the AL and the NL. The American League paid the players more per season. It was around $500 a season for the players, which in 1900 was pretty good cash. Yeah. Um, and because they were paying their players better, they were stealing. They were able to steal players from the National League. Um, some notables included Cy Young and Rube Waddell, and uh, also John McGraw. And you heard about all those people. If you haven't heard about all those people, we talked about them on the first episode, which you mm-hmm. should definitely go give a listen to. I think we're up on Castbox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and um, Stitcher. I don't remember. If not, <laughs> we'll be up there soon. Um, so, uh, like I said, uh, Cy Young, Rube Waddell, John McGraw, check out the first podcast to hear a little bit more about those guys. Um, about 100 players actually ended up leaving the National League for the American League, and uh, before too long, the American League had more star players and were hosting better games than the National League. And Oh, no. Uh it just Spalding wasn't happy. The owners of the National League weren't happy, 
it was just not a good time. Um, so in 1903, um, the owners, the National League owners, approached Ban Johnson, and they agreed that the two leagues would exist together, uh, honoring each other's contracts, so no player poaching. Uh, they retained the reserve clause, and if you go back to the first episode and listen, that was uh, something that was established early on by the owners, essentially saying that they could take excuse me, the contract of the best five players and force them to play for their mm-hmm. team again that year, essentially making them a, not a slave but stuck with that one team. There was no such thing as free agency. Um, that, and the reason I resummarize that because it lasts for a long time and it's hugely important through baseball history. Yes. Um, they decided there would be a three-man national commission which handled any disputes and it enforced any agreements. Um, and as we've seen thus far in baseball, the players had no representation. Yeah. So they have been represented pretty much not at all, unless you count the players league, which lasted for you know, like 10 years, maybe. Um, they also agreed to move the Orioles to New York in the American league. And they became the New York Highlanders and played at Hilltop Park. I have that jotted in a margin because I didn't note it at first, the importance of it when I read it. But it actually comes back to be important much later down the road. So that's why that is in my margins there. Anyway, October 1st, 1903. uh, The Boston Americans represented the American League and the Pittsburgh Pirates represented the National League. It was the first championship series between the two leagues, and they decided it would be a best-of-nine series, unlike the World Series today, which is seven. Mm -hmm. Um, The Pirates actually led the series three games to one, but Boston won the next three to win the series. Uh, The series was so popular... Wait, that math doesn't add up. The Pirates led the series three to one. Boston must have won the next four to win the series. I don't know why I noted three. Anyway, it was so popular, the series, that the American League and the National League agreed to do it every year um, and named it the World Series, even though it had nothing to do with the world. It was just the American Series, essentially. The and Might as well be the world. It's the world because baseball was only played in America. but um, the, At the time. At the time, yeah. Um. Another little tidbit about that is the the Boston Americans later went on to change the name to the Red Sox. Oh, so, so they they became big fish. They well, they just changed the name. They well. theoretically won the World Series, the first World Series. All right. Um, I'm also going to mention something about 1903, um, and I'm going to talk a lot more about this gentleman um, in a little bit, but. Um, there was a young pitcher named Andrew Rube Foster. And that's, he's not related to Rube Waddell in any way, shape, or form. Um, Actually, he, uh, if, I, if I remember right, uh, he got the nickname Rube Foster for being just as good, if not better, than Rube Waddell, if I remember correctly. You are correct. Sorry if I just took one of your You did, facts. but that's I'm, okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, 
in 1903, um, he rose to prominence when his team, the Cuban ex-Giants, won against the Philadelphia Giants um, in the colored championships. Um, and people say that Rube Foster carried that win. Um, and he's really? going to be a very, very important person uh, a little bit later on. So just remember that name, Rube Foster. And I noticed uh, you kind of seemed a little hesitant there when you said the ex-Giants. Yes. Um, that's something that a lot of black teams of the day would do is they would take names of teams and put X in front of them, EX or X. I don't know if they spelled it either one. but It was just an X. Yeah, it was just an X. And they would do that. Essentially for, I guess, a lack of creativity, but to be different. I'm not really sure why they would put the X on there, but obviously the names were quote-unquote taken. I'm sure they were trademarked, and there would have been huge penalty or problems if they had used, like, the Giants. We can, we can definitely talk more about that. Oh, yeah? Do you know something bit. about that? A little bit. But oh, we're, cool. We're looking at Learn up me into the, today. We're looking at getting up into the 20s, so let's finish okay. up yeah. the teens. All right, so... Despite the popularity of the World Series in 1903, uh, rowdy fans were causing a decrease in attendance, and Ban Johnson said games will now be patrolled in order to keep the rowdiness down. Patrolled? Yep. By police? Police. Ooh. Yep. Players, managers, and fans were now expected to behave. Oh. This is new new era in baseball. Um, so I mentioned him earlier. John McGraw didn't like that. He refused to stop berating umpires, and John, Ban Johnson... Banned him. Uh, suspended him. Sorry. Um, <laughs> McGraw left to manage a National League team, the New York Giants, for 31 years. He won the, their division 28 times and won 10 pennants, uh, which a pennant is the league championship. So that would be like the National League championship and the American League championship. All right. Each one gets their own pennants. Um, he managed them at the Polo Grounds. In 1904, uh, McGraw's Giants won their first NL pennant, um, but McGraw, McGraw refused to play the Boston Pilgrims because fuck Van Johnson. <laughs> and he said, he said, you suspended me. I'm not playing against your team. You can kiss my ass. And um, there was no World Series in 1904. Oh, wow. How, how do people feel about that? I don't know. No? I'm probably, probably pretty upset, um, honestly. If I, I would be pissed. Yeah, I would be too, but, you know... I guess that was back in the day when men held grudges. <laughs> like, As if they don't now. Well, a lot worse. <laughs> um, so the next bit that I've got here is on, uh, there was there was a gentleman uh, called Christy Mathewson, who is one of the best pitchers of this era. Um, in 1900, the New York Giants traded veteran pitcher Amos Rusi who was their best pitcher. Uh, he had 245 wins at the time for rookie pitcher Christy Mathewson. Um, he went on, Mathewson went on to have 373 career wins, and if I remember correctly, Rusi never had another win. Oh, wow. So that was like the ultimate buy high, sell low, yeah. or sell wow. high, buy low. Um, Christy Mathewson was nicknamed the Christian Gentleman because he was very virtuous, he, worshiped, uh, he was worshipped by young boys all over the country, and he really did a lot to improve the image of baseball because, like I said, at the time, there was a lot of chaos and rowdiness. Super and shady yeah. type. Um, so, 
skipping back into the timeline here. Uh, 1905, the New York Giants again, led by John McGraw or Tim McGraw. Wait, no, that's a singer. Um, <laughs> the New York Giants won the National League pennant, and Connie Mack's Philadelphia at- Athletics won the AL. If you remember, Connie Mack was one of the few managers that could put a handle on Rube Waddell, I think, yeah. if my memory serves. I believe so. Yeah. And uh, so John McGraw finally agreed to play in the World Series this time. Um, he, they decided it would be a seven-game series. Christy Mathewson pitched three shutouts in six days. That's 27 innings with zero runs. That's hugely impressive. And the Giants won four games to one very easily. So we're going to flash forward here, and we're going to talk about uh, 1906 World Series. Okay. Uh, if you want to know who won the 1905 World, oh wait, no, we just talked about 1905. Sorry. Um, if you want to know who won the 1905 World Series, it was the New York Giants. Uh, so in 1906, the Chicago Club, Chicago Cubs, believed to be one of, if not the best team ever. They had a that year. That's one of the best baseball teams. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a record of 116 and 36. Uh, they won the NL pennant pretty easily. The infield was made up of good defenders and turned turn double plays at a ridiculous pace for the time. Um, it was They were so good that there was even a poem written about them called Tinkers to Evers to Chance. Uh, it was written by Franklin P. Adams. Um, ironically, Tinkers, Evers, and Chance didn't like each other. Oh, they pretty much, I'm not going to say they hated each other, but they really didn't like each other. Okay. Um, Frank Chance, he was the manager of the Cubs, and he played first base. He fined players $10 for not shaking hands or for shaking hands with opposing players. Oh, wow. That tells you how times change. I immediately was like, for not shaking hands. And this guy was like, you shook their hands? $10. No. Jeez. Um, what a dick. Yeah. Johnny Evers played second base. He was very irritable and oversensitive, apparently. He missed an entire season after having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and spent it, uh, I don't think he spent it in an insane asylum, but spent it away, like at his home, okay. locked away. Um, Joe Tinker was the shortstop. He refused to speak to Johnny Evers for two seasons over Johnny Evers not splitting a cab fare with him. A cab fare? A cab fare. So okay. there was there was some animosity between these guys off the yeah, field, it but on the like field, it. they played like butter. So Mordecai Peter Centennial Brown, aka Three Finger Brown, he was missing an index and a pinky. Or, I'm sorry, his he was missing his index finger and his pinky finger was paralyzed, and because of this, he was able to throw a hell of a curveball. I would love to see what his curveball looked like today. Uh, he actually won 20 games for six straight years. Wow. That's, that's impressive for that's, pitching. That's amazing. So we're going to skip forward. Um, and Mordecai, Mordecai Brown pitched for the Cubs. Um, so there, we got a lot on, on that Cubs team. So uh, we're going to skip to the World Series in 06. It was the Chicago Cubs versus the Chicago White Sox who were known as the Hitless Wonders. Mm. Um, White Sox pitcher Ed Walsh 
overpowered the Cubs with his spitball. Um, and the Sox took took the series and won four out of six games. That doesn't sound right. Um, anyway, that's what I got. <laughs> okay. That doesn't sound right because I'm pretty sure the Cubs hadn't won in over 100 years and it was like 1906 was their 100, year, 100 years. Maybe the Cubs, maybe I'm wrong on that. I'll, I'll correct that if I'm wrong on that. Um, anyway, uh, you ever heard of the poem Casey at the Bat? Uh, it sounds familiar. Yeah, I don't have it written down. Uh, I don't either. Uh, I remember we read it in seventh grade, and it was basically saying uh, Casey was this amazing baseball player, um, and he came up to bat. He took strike one and strike two and finally swung on the third. It tells it kind of from a fan's perspective. He finally swung at the third pitch, and he struck out, and it's like down to the bottom of the ninth. It's just a great poem. Um, but it was written about this time. All right. So I just checked, and I was correct. In 1906, the Cubs did lose to the hitless wonder Chicago White Sox. Okay. Uh, so we're going to talk just a smidge, as I mentioned we would in the last podcast. Again, go listen to the dollop, but we're going to talk a little bit about Rube Waddell. Oh, Rube. His name was George Edward Waddell. Uh, as I said, check out the Dollop podcast because they do an amazing, amazing job covering this man, this man of wonder, in, wonder, <laughs> interest, confusion. He was an enigma, if there ever was an enigma. That's a good way to put him. Yeah. Um, so, Rube was a simpleton. That's how he got the nickname, Rube Waddell. Um to the point of he poured ice water on his arm before pitching so that he didn't burn up the catcher's glove. <laughs> uh, in the offseason, oh. he was known to uh, wrestle alligators. He had a very short attention span on the field. Um, opposing oppo- uh, pit, uh, opposing <laughs> fans would hold up puppies and shiny objects to distract him while he was pitching. I mean, to be fair, if someone held up a puppy, I would go run and say hi to it too. So, I mean, I can't blame him. Uh, you gotta have, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'd fall on that spectrum. <laughs> um, he was fascinated and loved fires and fire trucks. He had to be restrained whenever a fire <laughs> truck would come near the stadium. Oh. Otherwise, he'd leave in the middle of the game and chase after it. He would just chase a fire truck. Just like, like a dog. <laughs> like deuces. I'm, I'm out. I'm go gone. Find a new picture. Um, fans loved him. He would regularly regularly be missing until a few minutes before game time when all of a sudden he'd show up at the stadium, make his way through the stands and the fans, sometimes stealing people's beer and hot dogs and starting fights with them. Um, Apparently he would take his clothes off and change into his uniform on the field, and he didn't wear underwear very often. (laughs) So Rube is stark naked out there changing clothes. Uh, he actually ended up dying on April 1st in 1914 at 37 years old after uh, contracting tuberculosis while helping victims of a, of a flood. 
This guy was the closest thing to Forrest Gump I've ever heard of. It it sounds like Forrest Gump he, was like based off of him. Yeah, in a way. Um, if you have, that's just a just scratching the surface on Rube Waddell. Seriously, go listen to the Dalit podcast. Uh, it's like episode episode twelve. Twelve. They did a great job. Yes, they did. All right, so this is we're gonna get to one of the most polarizing people in baseball history. Oh, who's that? Ty, motherfucker, mean motherfucker. Cobb. All right. Ty Cobb is considered by many people to be the best baseball player of all time. But he is also considered to be the meanest baseball player of all time. Oh, no. What did he do? So. Tell, tell I, me. I think I've got an entire page of notes. Oh, tell me. Uh, so Cobb was born in 1886 in Georgia. His name, he, he's named Tyrus. Uh, his father was very distant and demanding, and Ty was never able to please or satisfy him. So, okay. so uh, nature versus nurture. Ty tended to take his frustrations out on others because of that. Uh, he left home at 17 to play in the minor leagues, and his father told him not to come home a failure. So he um, forged letters saying how good he was and sent them to the Atlanta Journal. Uh in an ironic twist of fate, Cobb's mother shot his father with a shotgun one night uh, when his father broke into his mother's bedroom window. Um. His father suspected that she was having an affair. She wasn't. And ended up shooting him, thinking he was a burglar. and killed him. <laughs> this is some crazy Yeah. Shit. Oh, we haven't even got to his playing career. So, August 30th, 1905... This is three weeks after his father was killed. Ty Cobb played the played his first professional game for the Detroit Tigers, or his first major league game. Uh, Cobb took rookie hazing personally, oh no, as he he viewed most challenges as a struggle of life and death. He thought everyone was against him, the entire world was out to get him, and he was very uh, oh I'm sorry, and that he had to survive against the world. It was it, it just literally a me versus the world mentality. To the nth degree. Um, so, he was often despised by his teammates and was incredibly racist. I will admit, though, I say he was despised by his teammates. There is one instance where it, it doesn't seem like he was as despised as, as it seems. Um, so, just to touch, like I said, he was very racist towards black people. Uh, just a couple of examples. A black groundskeeper tried to shake his hand, and Cobb slapped him and chased him into the dugout. Uh, then the groundskeeper's wife tried to intervene, and Cobb tried to strangle her, and then fought his own teammates when they pulled him off of her. I hate this dude. Yeah. This is the most... He's like the best baseball player ever, but that, he did stuff like that. God, I hate him. Um, he would often spike infielders, which if you don't know what that is, that's when you slide in, you hit them with hit your spikes, with your, with yep. your cleats... Um, which can, I, I knew a kid in high school that had, um, an artery torn in his arm, uh, from somebody spiking him Wow! and he was, yeah, I mean, he was fine and everything, but he he missed the rest of that season and it's dangerous. Yeah. Those cleats are, uh, he, yeah, absolutely. Ty Cobb, he was, he was willing to do whatever it took to win. Um, fans didn't quote unquote love Cobb for some of his personality things, but they admired his skill 
and it was often debated whether Rand, uh, Randall Cobb, uh, sorry, that's the Packer fan in me, whether uh, <laughs> Ty Cobb or Honus Wagner was the best ever, the GOAT, essentially. Um, he won an AL pennant and batting championship in 1907, won eight in a row and 12 out of 13 years. Mm. So that's just a little introduction to Ty Cobb. The early years, we'll call it. Ty Cobb, mean motherfucker, the early years. Okay. We'll come back to him later because he did some very outlandish things. And his me versus the world attitude made him the best, but it made him the worst. What a narcissistic prick. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about the dirty game. And what this game gave us, the Merkel boner. Ooh. And no, not a penis boner. <laughs> I was like, Merkel boner? That sounds like fun. It's, I guess <laughs> boner at that time was like a term for blunder, screw up. Interesting. So, Interesting the way language not, evolves. Yeah, not to spoil it. But um, so in, on September 23rd, 1908, the New York Giants played the Chicago Cubs fighting for the National League pennant. So, again, National League Championship to go to the World Series. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, this is September 23rd, 1908. Okay. Season's coming to a close, but it's not not quite finished yet. Yeah. So, bottom of the ninth, game's tied one-to-one. Giants are at bat. Giants had a man on third, and Fred Merkel was on first. Now, Merkel was a rookie, and he was only in the game because the starting first baseman was injured. Okay. So he had come in to replace him in the middle of the game. The giant shortstop hit a single, and the runner on third scored. Woo! Giants win. Fans poured onto the field, and just, it's quite honestly scared him. Merkel was alarmed, and he automatically assumed that the game was over. Oh, no. (laughs) This is against the Chicago Cubs. Tinkers, Evers, and Chance. Yep. Some of the best infielders. So, um, Merkel, like I said, Merkel was alarmed by the fans all storming the field, and he assumed the game was over, so he ran into the clubhouse without touching second base. Johnny Evers saw this and realized if he found the ball and touched second before Merkel, it had canceled the run by force out. That's some thinking right there. That's some... That's... That's... that's, mm. So, so there's a crowd of people on the field. This guy's looking for the ball. So, Evers was struggling to find the ball, and the Giants' third base coach, Joe McGinty, realized what Evers was attempting. He found the ball and threw it into the stands where a fan caught it and ran off with it. (laughs) (laughs) That's some... It was a cutthroat game back in the day. Oh, man. Can you imagine that today? Like, I can't even imagine fans storming the field today. Yeah. I can't imagine that, let alone let alone stealing the ball and whatnot. Um, so anyway, National League President Henry C. Pullman disallowed the Giants' run two days later and decided that if it came down to it at the end of the season, if the two teams tied in the standings, they would replay the game. Okay. Guess what happened? They had to replay the game. They had to replay the game. On October 8th, 1908, there was a one-game playoff at the Polo Grounds. Christy Mathewson pitched for New York, and Jack 
Fister with a P. Literally, it's spelled P. Fister. For the, club, for the Cubs. He pitched for the Cubs. Everybody wanted to go, and it got very rowdy. Not surprised. Fister gave up one run, and three-finger Brown was brought in. Brown gave up one more run, while the Giants gave up four. So the final ended up being four to two. The Cubs won the game. And because of Fred Merkel's boner, <laughs> they missed, the, uh, New York missed the World Series. Oh, wow. Um, the Giants owner actually had gold medals made that said the real champions, 1908. I think he was a little bitter about that. Yeah, a little bit. Um, in the 1908 World Series, uh, the Cubs beat Ty Cobb and the Tigers in five games, and that was their last World Series victory. Oh. Uh, uh, well, let me rephrase it. That was their last uh, victory until 2016. Yeah. Um, I remember staying up with my roommate at the time watching that. We were both, it was, we both had to be at work at like five in the morning and we were staring, sitting up. The game went to extra innings. It was game seven and we were sitting there. I'm not going to bed. This is history. If the Cubs win, this is history. Um, but it's, it's very ironic. Some people say that there was a curse on the Cubs because they won the World Series because of the Merkel Boner. Yep. Couldn't win again for a yep, hundred years. hundred plus years, so... Um, so as I said earlier, we were going to kind of do, uh, the early, the early days of Ty Cobb. Well, now we're at the mid days of Ty Cobb. Oh God. So we're going to, oh, I just did that stupid teeth clicking thing. Sorry, y'all. I keep, I'm going to try to stop that. Um, 1909, Ty Cobb stabbed a black hotel night watchman in Cleveland when asked to ID himself. What? God, I hate him. <laughs> the Tigers paid for the, the man's medical bills in exchange for him not prosecuting. The Tigers won their third American League pennant in a row and played the Pittsburgh Pirates in the World Series. It was the first time Ty Cobb played against Honus Wagner. Like I said, these were the two that were debated as the GOATs. Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh won in seven games, and Wagner heavily outplayed Cobb. Wagner hit three thirty three versus Cobb's 231, and Wagner stole six bases and Cobb only two. Okay, well, Wagner sounds like the winner. Head-to-head, -head, yes, but that's like comparing Mike Trout and Bryce Harper right now. They both play on opposite sides of the country, and they don't play very often. That would be, it would be something different if it was like Atlanta and Philadelphia where they played eight, ten times a year. But anyway, for now, tip the scale and – Honus Wagner's favor. So now let's talk about Cornelius Alexander McGillicuddy. Connie Mack, the manager who handled Rube Waddell. He was born in 1862 to Irish immigrants. Uh, he played in the majors for 11 years in almost every single position, uh, but he was mainly a catcher. Uh, 1901, he became partial owner of the Philadelphia Athletics and named himself manager. A role he held for 50 years. Ooh. You know, job security and whatnot. Oh, yeah. He was the game's gentleman, apart from Christy Mathewson. He was very worried about the game's integrity. So, now, 
I titled this section of my notes, Ty Cobb. Actually, I titled the last section about Ty Cobb as Ty Cobb again. I titled this one as Ty Cobb again with a vengeance. <laughs> Sorry, I was getting a little cute with my notes here. Um, May 15th, 1912. We're getting on through the years here. At Hilltop Park, which if you remember... I remember from your little margin note. My little margin note. Hilltop Park in Manhattan versus the New York Highlanders. A fan was heckling Cobb. Oh, no. Um, It was a disabled fan, if my memory serves right. Um, Cobb snapped in the third inning when the fan called him half and then the N-word. That's what the fan called him. Cobb snapped. He jumped into the stands. Remember, this guy's disabled, too. Started beating and stomping on him with his metal spikes. Oh! The fan didn't have hands. That was his disability. He didn't have hands. So Cobb was detained by a police officer. If you guys heard that noise, it's Megan, like, grabbing her face and accidentally hitting the mic. Yep. Sorry, guys. <laughs> that just... Um, oh, my God. So... For the incident, Ban Johnson suspended Cobb indefinitely. Um, wow. Just to give you an example of the times, the fans cheered Cobb as he left the field. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a dick. Yeah. Teammates didn't like Cobb, as I said earlier, but they agreed that his reaction was justified due to the insult. Uh, That's a sign of the times right there. Wow. They refused to play. Until Cobb was reinstated, this was the first player strike in Major League Baseball history. Wow. Ban Johnson, big Ban Johnson, he's, at this point, he's become big man in charge mm-hmm. over the MLB, especially, well, at least over the American League um, and the tri- Tigers in the American League. Ban Johnson threatened to suspend every Tigers player if they didn't return. Ty Cobb actually urged his teammates to relent. He said, go, play. Um, the players were fined $100 each, and Ty Cobb paid $50, and his suspension was lifted. Uh, but his teammates supposedly hated him. That's why I said there's been mm, some ev- Yeah, it, It's one of those things where it just shows you the sign of the times because they didn't like him. They thought he was over the top. But they understood if that was them, they wouldn't have liked being called that. It just, it's, unfortunately, it's a sign of the times it was. Baseball, history, parallels American history a lot. And that's just, unfortunately, how it was. Uh, Um, And I'm not, I don't want to apologize and say it's right or wrong or anything. It just, that's the facts. So, we're going to skip on now. That was in, what I say, that was 1912 Uh, or 11. That was in 1912, so we're going to skip to the end of that season and talk about the World Series. Okay. It was the New York Giants versus the, fresh off their name change, Boston Red Sox. Ooh. It was uh, their first year in Fenway Park, which for anybody, any Red Sox fans out there, I'm going to give you the shout-out. It is the oldest park still played in. Um, game one was played in New York. The Red Sox won 4-3. to three. Pretty uneventful game. Game two was played in Boston. A fist fight broke out between the Giants' third baseman, Buck Herzog, and the Red Sox uh, 
Tries Speaker. I think that's what I wrote. I think that's his name, Tries Speaker. Anyway, they were tied 6-6 to in the 11th inning, and the game was called a tie due to darkness. Officials decided that Game 2 didn't count, and this would be an eight-game series, excuse me, if needed, um, since the second game was a tie. Mm. By Game 6, the Red Sox were up three games to two. The Royal Rooters... The Royal Rooters uh, were the Red Sox rough and rowdy Irish fan club. Uh, they had their seats sold, and it almost started a riot. They normally sat in one section of Fenway Park, and um, there was such a desire for a demand for tickets to this game that their seats were sold out from under them, and they were so pissed off. Um, Did they not buy their tickets? I'm not sure if they... I think it was like a first-come, first-serve type oh, deal. Oh, well. Shit, that's their fault then. The sad thing is, like, one of the leaders of the um, Royal Rooters owned a bar uh, called... It was either called Third Base or Third Base Line or something like that because it was the last place you stopped before going home from the game. It was it was a really clever name. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was something like that. He was like the leader of that fan club, and they met there before and after games one day. Anyway, they almost started a riot to get their seats back. Wow. Um, Smokey Joe Wood, who was the hero of games one and four in this series, he was the pitching hero. He didn't get to warm up because of this, because of all the commotion, and he gave up six runs in the first inning on 13 pitches. That's a bad day. Yeah, that is a very bad day. That is a terrible day for the pitcher. So, the Giants ended up winning 7-1, to one, which prompted Game 8. Of course, whenever some kind of funky special circumstances happen in baseball, yep. it's going to get fulfilled. So, in Game 8, Christy Mathewson p- pitched for New York. It was tied 1-1 to one in the 10th inning, and New York center fielder Fred Snodgrass dropped an easy fly ball that ultimately cost New York the game. So, Mm. Boston won that World Series. And this was their first season playing as the Red Sox. In Fenway. Mm. Right. This is why my margin was important. In 1913, the New York Highlanders changed their name. They went on to become the New York Yankees. That's familiar. That's a little bit of a familiar name. The uh, Also in 1913, the Brooklyn Dodgers began playing in Ebbets Field. I don't know why I have that random little trivia thrown in there. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> in 1912, the Fraternity of Professional Baseball Players of America was formed. It had two main goals, to eliminate the reserve clause yep. and to gain a larger share of the profits from the owners. Um, the owners ignored the players <laughs> until 1914 when businessmen decided they were going to form the Federal League and started offering the players larger salaries and the right to become free agents. So essentially what was happening before between all the early leagues and then later the American League and National League This is happening again. 
like I said, Ban Johnson is no nonsense. Big man on campus. You don't do anything without Ban Johnson's approval. All right. Um, Three Finger Brown and Joe Tinker were among stars that left to go to this new federal league. Um, they renovated old parks, built new ones in some cases. They actually built Wrigley Field. Um, Ban Johnson despised the federal league. But he began increasing player salaries to stop the players from leaving for uh, leaving the MLB and promised increases. He was doing that for star players. He promised increases for all players and average and lower tier guys in the future. The Federal League ended up suing MLB in 1915, saying that it was a monopoly. And the judge took a very long time to rule. Okay. The judge's name was Kennesaw Mountain Landis. After two seasons, the Federal League ended up folding, and Ban Johnson reneged on his promise to pay the higher salaries. I see you looking through your notes over there for Kennesaw Mountain Landing. You have him in your notes because we're going to come back to him. While you look, yes, I'm going to talk about Branch Ricky. Sorry for it being kind of all over the place here this time, but I'm kind of trying to go in chronological order. Branch Ricky spent a few years as a major league catcher, but he wasn't very good. What you got? Uh, it's going to be something we talk about okay. later on, but yeah, okay. I, I knew that name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he's big. He's big time in, he's, in baseball history. He's important. Yeah, he's really important. Um, anyway, Branch Ricky. He spent a few years in the major leagues as a catcher, but he wasn't very good. Um, he got a job with the St. Louis Browns, which was one of the poorest teams. Um, and he moved up very quickly and became the manager in 1913. He, I don't want to call him a genius, but he was very innovative for the game. He invented or introduced the batting cages. He held what were called skull sessions, which were evening classes slash meetings on the theory of baseball. He would only manage Monday through Saturday. He didn't manage on Sundays because he didn't believe... It's God's day. It's God's day, exactly. It's the Lord's day. You don't do anything on Sunday. In 1919, he became the general manager for the St. Louis Cardinals and spent 23 years in the role. And in doing that, he developed the farm system that we know today, which for anyone who doesn't know, essentially is minor league and minor league teams at different levels. Um, you know, you have your one step down from the major, two steps down from the majors, and it goes all the way down to rookie rookie leagues and whatnot. But they're associated with specific major league team. So, for instance, we live in Charlotte, and the Charlottes have the Charlotte Knights, which are the AAA team for the White Sox, which means they're the first first team below the White Sox in that organization. Um, So, let's talk a little bit about baseball and World War I. Okay. The owners... Didn't want to stop playing. Yeah. They all agreed that the players should be exempt from the draft and 
it did not work one bit. No, it did not. Um, 247 players ended up serving, and three were killed in action. Mm. Uh, if I was better at this, I would know who was killed in action. <laughs> the beginning of a podcast is yep. really shit, guys. Yep. One if, day we're going to be great. If I was better at this, I would <laughs> know who they were. But a moment of silence for the three KIA. All right. So Branch Rickey commanded a unit with Captains Ty Cobb and Christy Mathewson. Neither saw combat, but Mathewson was exposed to poison gas during a training drill that affected his lungs. This incident ended his career and ultimately killed him seven years later. All right. So there goes the Christian gentleman, one of the most popular players of the time. Yep. Over and done because of World War I. Um, during the seventh, what you got? I was real quick going to say, um, World War One. if you remember uh, Rube Foster that I was talking about earlier, um, in World War One, manpower was needed to power the power plants, um, and it caused a lot of Southern African Americans to migrate up north, which got their culture heavily into baseball. Um, and suddenly, um, black Americans were really getting into the sport of baseball and that helped um rube foster eventually be able to create his league which i'll talk about in a little bit really yes we'll definitely have to uh come back to that yes we will um during the seventh inning stretch of the first world series game in 1919 a band played a song entitled The Star-Spangled Banner, and the crowd began singing. The song was played for the rest of the series, and it became an integral part of baseball. As we all know, if you live in America, or probably most people in the world, the song became the national anthem later on in 1931. So it became an integral part of baseball history before it was ever national anthem for this country. All right. So maybe maybe a baseball to kind of thank for that. In a way, in a way, honestly, we do. Whoops. Um, so we're gonna flash back just a smidge in time. We're gonna go to. Sorry, I was around the microphone there. We're gonna go to 1918. Um, yes. The World Series. Are you? I think you might be skipping one year ahead. I am. Yep. I'm a horrible person. Um, Go ahead. That's all right. This one's real quick. The Red Sox <laughs> beat the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Babe Ruth, a big name in baseball. Maybe. I might have heard of him. Really? I mean, he's only got a candy bar named after him. Yeah. I don't know. He's something. Actually, random trivia. That candy bar is not named after Babe Ruth. It's not? No, it's named after Baby Ruth. Um, um, shit. I think it's Grover Cleveland's daughter was named Ruth. And they called her Baby Ruth. Grover they, Cleveland, the baseball player? No, Grover Cleveland, the president. Okay. Because there's also a Grover, Grover Cleveland baseball player. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I should have been a little more clear about that on a baseball podcast. No, it was President Grover Cleveland. Um, and that's where they got the name. I, I think it was Grover Cleveland. Anyways, the president's daughter's name was Ruth, and they called her Baby Ruth, and that's how they got the candy bar. <laughs> I'm um, still going to say it's Babe Ruth. Because oh, okay. 
I like that more. Um, so that's my history. The head cannon. <laughs> the Red Sox beat the Chicago Cubs in 1918. Uh, Babe Ruth pitched two games and won them both. Yes, Babe Ruth pitched. Yes, he's was the home run king for a long time, and he was a pitcher. Um, the Red Sox won four World Series in the 19 teams, and they didn't win another until 2004. Some think, you ever heard of the curse of the Bambino? Yep. Some think that Babe Ruth put a curse on him when they traded him. Yep. I think one of my favorite movies growing up was The Sandlot. Oh, yeah. You're killing me, Smalls. Forever. Okay, sorry, I'm done. <laughs> um, now, now we can talk about what you want to talk about. All right. The Black Sox. Yes. In 1919. 1919 Black Sox. Um, this is arguably the uh, greatest scandal in baseball history. Yeah, if you thought Ty Cobb beating people up for subtle insults was bad, this is... This is an insane. This is more of a stain on baseball's history, but that was probably more of a socially bad thing. Yes. Um... So, we're going to start off. Uh, the White Sox played the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series that year. And they lost. Because they threw. They threw what? They threw the game. They the series? Or they threw a game? They threw a few games. So Oh, dear. Yes. Um a lot of the history is still debated um, because once this is all over, um, a lot of people who were involved would have conflicting stories and all that fun stuff. Um, but what we are pretty sure about is there was a gambler named Joseph Sullivan. He went by Sport. And he approached the first baseman of the White Sox. And this is Chick Gandal, Arnold Chick Gandal. And he approached him because he wanted him to throw the World Series for $100,000. Now, do you know why they were so tempted, why they approached these particular players? I do not. So the White Sox were actually very underpaid um, for their performance. The players, which again, I guess is a product of the time, if you look at Tinker's Evers and Chance, but the players didn't get along on the White Sox, but they also didn't get paid much, and they played well enough to win the American League pennant in 1919. Um, the players were very bitter about their salaries, and um, second baseman Eddie Collins was actually ignored during practice by his other infielders because he made the most money on the team. Hmm. Interesting. Um and one other tidbit on that is the owner's name was Charles Comiskey. Do you have where the nickname the Black Sox came from? Do you know where that originated? I do not. Okay. So Charles Comiskey was incredibly cheap to the point where he charged the players money to launder their uniforms. <laughs> and the players said, no. Um, so they, 
they decided to stop washing their uniforms, and each time they played, the uniforms got darker and darker and darker, and they were called the Black Sox before the cheating scandal because their socks were so dark, they Gross. looked black. Gross. <laughs> anyway, then Chuck Gandal was approached about money because they didn't make any for as good as they were. Yes. Um, I looked it up. So he was offered $100,000. Is that our time or their time? Their time. Their time. Wow. So in our money, it's $1,491,161.85 today in 2020. Oh, wow. That's a a pretty penny. That's a lot of money. Um, What did you say the, the gambler's name was? Joseph Sport Sullivan was the first to approach Chick. Do you know who he was working for? Yes. <laughs> Arnold Rothstein. Yes, and do you know who Arnold Rothstein was? I know he was a kingpin, major he, boss. He was New York's most notorious gambler. And he was ultimately the one, the figurehead, the kingpin behind this plot. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I did not know that he, I didn't know who approached him, though. Yep. Who, like, the foot soldiers were. Yep. Um, and Chick ended up getting together with some of his other players. Do you um, happen to know who? Yes, I do. Tell me. I want right. to know. Give me their names. All They're, right. These are, these are the people with one of the worst scandals in baseball history. Shame them. Okay. Um, pitchers, Eddie Seacott. And Lefty Williams, Claude Lefty Williams. The shortstop, Charles Reisberg. Outfielder, Oscar Happy Felch. Third baseman, Buck Weaver. Infielder, Fred McMullen. And power hitter, Shoeless Joe Jackson. A.K.A. J.J.J. Joseph Jeffrey Jackson. Um, and also Chick Gandal, obviously. Yes. Um, and just a little quick note on Shoeless Joe. He was a very, very, very popular player across the Midwest. Yes, he very was. Very popular. Yes. Um, it's highly debated how much he played in this. Yep. Um, Buck Weaver was in initial talks, um, basically decided to get a girl conscience and he was like, all right. I'm out. I don't want to do it. So he didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Fred McMullen, their infielder, overheard them talking about it and was like, I want in. So he basically took Weaver's spot. Um, Not that uh, that would matter um, coming up. Um, Just to interrupt real quick before we get too crazy and too far off topic, I do have two little tidbits about Shoeless Joe Jackson real quick. Yes, let me know. So his nickname was he was rumored to have played in socks because new shoes were too tight on his feet. Um, he was a career 356 hitter, which is still good good enough for third all-time. Mm-hmm. And Ty Cobb called him the best natural hitter you ever saw. Yeah, That's high praise coming from a great baseball player, but a shitty person. Horrible person. <laughs> um, so on October 1st of 1919... They had their first of a nine-game World Series. Um, Do you Chicago- know why they chose nine games? I didn't write it down. It's so for- tell me. Bless you, Bo. <laughs> the, um, I told you the owner was super cheap. Yep. He wanted more money. 
That was pure and simple. Makes sense. Give me all the money. Hell yeah, give it to me. All right. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. October 1st, first game. The Chicago White Sox lost 9-1. to The team that dominated the season. Yes, that was sure to win the World Series. Lost their first game. Second game. I have a question. Yes, teacher. sir. Yes. Um, how did these guys get paid? So they were they paid up front, or was this something like they were paid part up front or half at the end, or how how'd that work? So um, they agreed to take twenty thousand dollars at the end of each game lost. So lose five games, you get a hundred thousand dollars. Hundred G's. Yep. Nice. Um, the second game. Wasn't as bad of a loss. Um, they still lost four to two. Uh, lefty, uh, Lefty Williams, uh, basically gifted three walks to the Cincinnati Red batters, um, and that cost them the game. Um, and I, I do want to note at 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 this point that um, at the time, Christy Mathewson was. Uh, part of what would be considered the media nowadays, he was he was at this at this World Series, and he was observing. I don't know if he was like radio announcing or, or what exactly he was doing, but he was able to tell, and other people that knew and watched the games were able to tell that the players weren't playing to their full potential. Yeah, it was um, very obvious. Yeah, like the outfielders were slowing down and letting easy balls drop and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I do want to say real quick, and you might you might touch on this later, but it's not like they didn't try throughout the series. Shoeless Joe Jackson and Weaver both hit well during the series. Yes. So there was uh, – they, in some aspects, kind of made it convincing, but in others, they really didn't. Yeah. Um, well, after game five, the Black Sox were starting to get pissed because they were not getting paid. Um, and so they decided to stop throwing. They were going to win. We in it for real now. Yep. And they proceeded to win game six at five to four and game seven at four to one. Um, and it looks like they were, they were coming back. They were going for the win. If you're keeping score at home, the series is now four games to the Reds, three games to the Black Sox. Yes. Out of an eight-game, nine-game series. Nine-game series. Uh, the uh, gangsters are said to have threatened their families before game eight. Uh, I got something a little no. bit different there. Oh, really? What well, you I'm not going to say a little bit different. A little bit more detailed okay. was what I got. So, uh, what was his name? Williams, the pitcher. Which, which pitcher was his name? Claude Williams. Claude Lefty Williams. Uh, he was scheduled to pitch in the next game, game eight, it would have been. Mm-hmm. Do or die. Yep. Um, and he was, like you said, they were missing cash, so he was motivated to win. He was, uh, I'm going to give him my A game. And they, the gamblers, the night before game eight, threatened to uh, to hurt his wife unless he threw the series. So I, I don't know if they threatened other people's families or if it was just his but that was what I found, that they threatened his. I found that they 
they believe they threatened a lot of their families. Oh, okay. Um, but again, it goes back to at the end of all this, there's conflicting stories and absolutely no, so. I wasn't involved. And blah, blah. Um, so game eight, they lost, they lost 10 to five and the Cincinnati Reds won the 1919 world series. Womp, womp, womp. So sports writer, Hugh Fullerton was a little bit concerned by this um and he began to lead an investigation against the white Sox and their owner um charles komiski komiski old cheapy yeah he refused to investigate it yep he was so cheap he denied all claims um and historians today think he most likely knew of the fix and was trying to protect his business yeah, he was trying to keep his players. He didn't want to lose yeah. his best players to suspension. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Cheapo. Yep. Um, and no one cared. It went uninvestigated and unexamined until August 31st of 1920. Yes, yeah, the following year. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it got brought up because they found out there was a rigged game very similar it's the Cubs versus the Phillies, and it was just a regular season game. It wasn't World Series or anything. Um, and because of this, the grand jury decides to investigate the 1919 World Series. Remember how I said old Ben Johnson was large and in charge, and you don't do anything without notifying Mr. Johnson? Mm-hmm. He was pissed. Oh, I bet. Um, at this same time, Bill Marg who uh, was a gambler. He went to the public um, with his involvement in this fix, and that kind of spurred it on even more. So a couple months later, October of 1920, all eight players are indicted on nine counts of conspiracy. And they are scorned by the media until their trial June of 1921. Um... I just want to make note that at this time, this is while the investigation and, and I believe the um, uh, the jury was going on, they were playing for the 1920s pennant. They were in the midst of the season, like in, in the pennant race. Mm-hmm. And this this is all going on. So imagine that's one hell of a distraction. Oh, yeah. For all pretty much, you know, a quarter of the team. Yeah. Um, so by their trial in June, 1921, mysteriously, all the paper records relating to confessions disappeared. By the way, just to cut in there, um, Eddie Sicotti and Joe Jackson both confessed. Yes. They did both confess. Those were two that mysteriously went missing. Yes. Um, Joe Jackson said he was only offered like $8,000 and he wasn't like really into it i know he was trying to he said she said yeah kind of yeah. yeah and he was trying to not look as bad as everyone else on his team so today historians tend to believe that uh cheapo the owner and kingpin arnold rothstein conspired to have the papers stolen so that they did not have a case anymore um i mean that's a brilliant strategy well 
Yeah, a little illegal. Just a little. I mean, it's only illegal if you get caught. They did not, so... It's not illegal. <laughs> um, the prosecution's case vanished without these confessions, and on August 21st... Or, no, I'm sorry, on August 2nd of 1921, the Black Sox are found not guilty on all counts. But they still done it. They definitely done they it. They done it. They done it. They're like the black spot on baseball history. Yep. One of them, at least. Yes. A, a big one. Yep. Well, despite all this, Judge Kesaw Mountain Landis. Kennesaw. Kennesaw, whatever. I can't talk. <laughs> uh, Throw some respect on his name. <laughs> respect. Respect. A respect. Throw, throw some respect on his name. All right. So, um, he became baseball's first commissioner. Well, the reason he did is because um, the team owners decided, amidst the scandal, that the national commission they had formed of three people wasn't fit to handle. So they pretty much said, we're going to revamp this with one commissioner. Mm-hmm. And it was old Judge Landis. Yep, and he had a ton of power. Yes, and he said, quote, regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player that undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player that sits in conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball. And he bans all eight players from ever playing the game again. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, he, he did what he thought was right for baseball. Um, and honestly... He probably was right. He, this is honestly one of the most ironic things, in my opinion, of this entire situation, is that the owners appointed him commissioner. And actually, Ban Johnson did not want him. Uh, and but he was outvoted by the other owners, and Landis made the owners fall in line too. <laughs> Landis, like they created him, and he turned against them. He, it's kind of like Obi Wan and Anakin in a way. Yeah, only, only a little only, bit better. Yeah, and we're maybe, gonna. Mm, okay, it's kind of. I like, have the high ground, Johnson. <laughs> um, you were my brother, Kennesaw. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm I'm stuck in episode three right now. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, Let's see. So, yeah, a day after being acquitted, they were all banned from professional baseball. Um, Um, Buck Weaver, even though he backed out and dropped out and he was not involved anymore. Gone. Gone. Doesn't matter. You knew about it. You're out. Um, Shoeless Joe said he was unwilling um, gone. He tried to tip off the owner of the White Sox. Nope. Gone. You're gone. So, his series best at batting average of seven, no, 375. Gone. <laughs> yep. Uh, and because of Judge Landis, this ban helped clean Spaceball's image after this scandal and helped kind of sweep it under the rug. Even still, though, fans were skeptical after all this said and done. Um, and honestly, they kind of began t- 
turn it away from the game. Uh, it wasn't until uh, a few years later when they started kind of coming back, coming back for yep. a specific person. Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about 1920s. And I would argue that the 1920s is probably the golden age of baseball. I would agree. Okay. I would agree 100% because of a huge change that was made. Yes. So I wrote down the contributing factors to why the 20s became the golden age. Excellent. Let's hear them. <laughs> Teach me. So for the first time ever, radios were able to be mass produced and mass produced cheaply so that everyday families could have a radio and they could listen into games. That just blew my mind because whenever I think of the heyday of baseball, I think about people listening to it on the radio. Yep. But I thought it was happening much earlier than I did not realize that was like the 20s. It was the 1920s. Wow. Wow, I didn't realize that. This is also when newspapers began to have a sports section. It was solely devoted to baseball. At the time, basketball wasn't a thing and football was just in its infancy It was very disorganized at that point, kind of like baseball was at the very beginning. Yes. Um, So these sports sections and newspapers pretty much devoted to baseball. Um, They believed the stability of the game. It finally kind of plateaued, and the game remained unchanged uh, for 30 years until the 1960s, or the leagues remained unchanged. Now, here's a big thing. Big thing. Baseballs started to be made differently. Yes, they did. Do you know what this is called? Or what the era we just covered was called? It's called the dead ball era. The dead ball era. Um, just a little tidbit here. That One of the White Sox teams, I think it was called the Hitless Wonders. Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember why they're called the Hitless Wonders now. Because they had seven home runs the entire year. They, it just the ball did not travel. No, it did not fly. Yeah, if you scored a home run, it was because, um, it was an inside the park home run. Yes, it was somebody tripped or slipped or collided or something like that. Yes. Do you know why they changed the ball? Uh, I don't know why, but I know what Ooh. it did. Okay, well, let me tell you a little bit about why they changed it. Okay. So, prior to nineteen twenty one. Like I said, to hit a home run, it had to be an inside the parker. Um, for those of you that don't watch baseball, that's when you hit the ball and you run around all the bases and you get back to home before getting thrown out. Mm-hmm. Um, the ball didn't fly very well because it was wrapped too tight uh, and it bounced funny because during the game it would proceed to get lopsided from getting hit with the bat and whatnot. So it would bounce funny and make fielding hard. Um Pitchers could do whatever they wanted to the balls. They'd spit tobacco juice on them. They'd uh, scuff them up. They'd cover them in mud. And the balls just became brown and nasty and hard to see. Um, And hard. that was part of it. It was harder to hit if it was nasty brown like that. Mm -hmm. Can't see it coming at you. On August 16th, 1920, Ray Chapman, shortstop shortstop for the Cleveland Indians, was up to bat against Carl Mays of the New York Yankees. Chapman was hitting the temple with the ball. 
It mm. crushed the side of his skull, and he died the next day. Oh. As God. a result, they changed the ball and how, how it was wound, and that made it livelier, a little bit more. It flew easier. Um, and umpires were then ordered to remove a ball once it got dirty and replace it with a new bright white ball, which I did not know until yeah. I, I did this. I wondered why they went through so many baseballs regularly. Have you ever watched a baseball game and oh, sat yeah. there and counted how many pitches oh, yeah. a ball's life is? Yes. So um, I think I said in the last episode that me and my dad would go to games at Coors Field all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of his clients had season tickets on the dugout of the imposing team. Like you could reach out and touch them. You're not, don't do that. You'll get kicked out. Um, <laughs> but his client's son was a ball boy and color me jealous. No, sorry. And so his son would regularly like jump on top of the dugout and give me a ball. That was cool. That's awesome. I used to get that at the Kannapolis intimidators games. Not nearly as cool as the freaking Colorado (laughs) Rockies. That's like the lowest of low a ball. Like the, Oh, so. it, it's like right above rookie ball. You ready to be really mad? <sighs> Woosa. The only ball I still have is from a Braves game. That's all right. I got a ball over there with Freddie Freeman and Evan Gaddis' okay. signature on it. I, okay. can, I can live with it. All right. That's right, Fredward. I still got your signature. <laughs> Fredward. Um. The only other note that I got, I'm going to let you take over because I started Babe Ruth and then got real shitty taking notes. Um, <laughs> uh, the change in the ball shifted a dominance from pitchers to hitters. Yes. Which, ironically, if you go back and listen to the first episode, the original concept of baseball was the pitcher wasn't there to be a weapon. He was just there to get the ball to the mm-hmm. hitter, and the hitter was to lob it. Now we're back almost on equal footing. Like Yes. You're attacking me, but I got I got a ball that's going to fly now. Yes, so uh, one of the things you did not mention, reason why the balls could fly, other than not being wound as tight, is they now were made with cork centers. What were they made of before? I don't remember. It says they were wound tightly. I think it, I think it was made with cork before. I think it was just a super tightly wound. Mm, okay, I'll take it. Anyway, that's going to um. be the new headcanon. Anybody that doesn't like it can look it up and... Yell at us. Yell at us and let us know. We got, we got uh, Twitter and Instagram. Instagram right now. And we'll get a Facebook and. Will we? <laughs> I will, and eventually we'll figure out what our name is really going to be, and it'll all be permanent. <laughs> yeah, right now, if you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, uh, I think it's at Joker's Squared. That's Joker's Squared. So there's two S's side by side, which sounds really dumb, but. You know, a lot of stuff was taken on Twitter and Instagram. Yep. Um, Throw us, hit, wait, hold on. I've always wanted to say this. Hit the like, or smash that like button and subscribe button. <laughs> or something like that. I don't know what those damn YouTubers do. Uh, <laughs> It'd really help us out. It would. It would. <laughs> if you like us even a little bit, please give smash, us a five-star rating. Smash that, smash that share and like and subscribe button. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm bad at marketing myself. Me anyway, too. all right, let's all talk. Right. Let's get okay. back to baseball. So back to baseball. Um, before the 1920s, stadiums were 
mammoths. They were huge. And huge. Huge. Um, you couldn't hit a ball out of the park. Well, the 1920s brought new stadiums to baseball. And Fenway and Wrigley are the only two stadiums left of that era that we still play in today. Yes, they are. Well, the stadiums now, they were big enough to house people, but you could also get the ball to fly out of the stadium. That sounds like a problem. It ended up being great. Really? Mm-hmm. Helped. I'm sure that probably helped attendance drive it all helped. fans in. Yep, yeah. helped attendance. Um, and Babe Ruth, all those home runs where he shot them out of the park. Old stadiums, he wouldn't have been able to do that. Yep. Um, he came along right guy, right time. Yep, definitely. Um, 1920s also arguably came with the greatest players in baseball history um so even if you are not a baseball fan i can guarantee you know the names babe ruth and lou gehrig they're household names to this day um (laughs) really really you knew that to me Mm, nah okay um so those were 1920s era players um you also had rogers hornsby um, Alexander Grover Cleveland, who I was confused about earlier. Um, not the guy who had baby Ruth. No. Uh, George Sisler, Trish Speaker, and Pi Trainer. These are all 20s era players that are icons in the game. They're the Honus Wagners and the Ty Cobbs of the 1920s. Yes. Yes. So, arguably, those are. Big reasons why uh, the 1920s became the greatest era in baseball history. If you really, honestly, just thinking about this, there's a big shift from almost like a generational shift in baseball at this time. You had your Christy Mathewsons, your Honus Wagners, your Ty Cobbs, and it seemed like this new crowd's coming in. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, you know some of these others it 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 just it was a huge generational shift in Mm -hmm. baseball it seems like so I can definitely I can relate to that and I can see how that can bring in new fans too yeah and it it happens every generation absolutely I mean you can look at it with the Braves right now Mm -hmm. I grew up a 90s Braves fan and they just went through this huge rebuild and I haven't been as excited for a team, I, honestly, I've went through it twice. I went through. I had the '90s Braves, and they rebuilt with the baby Braves in the early 2000s, and now they've rebuilt again with Acuna and Ozzy, and you know, Freddie's the only person that's left over. And it's it's really interesting how the teams go through like generational. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been this excited for a Braves team, and as I have been the last few years in a long time. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Talk to me about the 20s. I'm going to stop interrupting now. Okay. Um, now, I don't, I don't like saying this, but the National Negro Baseball League um, was formed or founded February 13th of 1920. 
and this is huge. Um, and Negro was accepted up until the 1970s as the proper term. Um, nowadays, it's, it's not, but they still refer to it as the NNL. Um, I mean, I've still heard current yeah. baseball people call it the Negro Leagues. Even, yes, it, even like, old, like older black players still call it the Negro Leagues. Yeah. So I, like, I wouldn't go out and no. point at somebody and do it, but like talking about history... I think it's fine to say it. I know. As a cis white girl, I'm like, mm, I don't like it. I don't <laughs> like it. I'm too liberal for this. Okay. So, remember when I was talking about Andrew Rube Foster? I remember. <laughs> you remember? I remember. All right. So, we need to talk about this brilliant dude. And he really was brilliant, both on the field and off the field. So, uh,. Foster was the founder of the National Negro League. He also was indicted into the Hall of Fame. Um, and I forgot the year. I think it's 1963. Not sure. We'll get better at this. Yep. We promise. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I already told you about how in 1903 um, he made his basically debut um, where he carried uh, the Cuban ex-Giants um, uh, and their win against the Philadelphia Giants. Well, Walter Schlickner <laughs> was the owner of the Philadelphia Giants. And in true baseball fashion, he said, you're mine now. And he took Rube Foster and hired him to play um, for the Philadelphia Giants where he played, and they stayed on the top of the league until 1907, um, when Foster then went to play and manage the Leland Giants. Whoa, hold on. Time out. How many Giants are there? There were the <laughs> X-Giants, the Philadelphia Giants, the Leland Giants, the New York Giants, the San Francisco Giants, the New York Giants, the other New York, the football New York Giants. How many Giants are there? There are a ton. It's almost like stockings and socks. There's just giants everywhere. Come on, guys. Let's get a little creative here. We might not be the best to say that, though, since we're struggling with our name so much. Hey, we got a name right now. It's just a matter of we want a better name. Uh, true. A more suitable name, because this originally was going to be more of a comedy podcast, and we've switched Turned away to shift gears. History, so, yeah. Yeah, so. Okay. We're thinking down the rabbit hole, but, you know, down the hair hole is another, <laughs> another option. <laughs> It sounds terrible, it but... It sounds awful. You know. Uh, anyway. But, okay. Yeah, we'll talk about that later when the Feel free to rolling. send us name suggestions. Yes, please. And give us a five-star review so we can climb up the And charts. smash that subscribe and like button. <laughs> uh, all right. So Foster turned the Leland Giants into the team to beat. And by this point, Foster believed that um, believed in an all-black league, and he believed that black teams should be owned by black men, which was very controversial controversial at the time. I mean, that's kind of logical, though. I mean, well, white people didn't like that. I, well, yeah, I, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure they didn't. But <laughs> I mean, logic dic dictates if you know. I don't know. I feel like the motto at the time. This is the 20s you know, separate but equal was 
you know, commonly thrown around in the South, like, that's equal. Like, why can't they own their own teams? Because I, white people didn't yeah, really mean well, equal. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm aware of all that's wrong. I'm, I'm saying it's wrong. It just, logically, it. Yes. It, white people were illogical. Yes. Damn white people. Crackers. Um, well, this was in, again, uh, 1907. Um, and basically no one said he could do it. There can't be an all-black league. It can't be uh, managed and ran by black men. You're just, you're out of your mind, Foster. And mm. um, he let it go. He ended up renaming the Leland Giants to the Chicago American Giants. Still Giants, but now not named after Leland, who oh. was the original owner. Um, okay. American Giants. I can live with it because it's different from regular Giants. Yes, American Giants. And I can even live with the New York football Giants because it's different than regular Giants. Anyway. Like, there's still a lot of Giants. Yeah, there are. Go on. Um, so now we're getting back to World War I. Um, America entered the world... The war- World War I in 1917. Um, and I already said that because of the need for manpower, um, a lot of black Southerners migrated to the North. This led to more of a fan base. Larger and more affluent fan base equals profits. And so when the war ended in 1919, Foster was ready to start the Negro Baseball League. And he did it. And there are eight original teams um, in the NNL. And that is the Chicago American Giants. The Chicago Giants. What? Hold on. That's not going to be confusing. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. The Cuban Stars. The Dayton Marcos. Detroit Stars. Indianapolis ABCs. Kansas City Monarchs. And St. Louis Giants. Well, it's the bottom of the ninth, and the Giants are leading the Giants. Uh, oh, my God, I can hear it. Oh, <laughs> guys, better names. Yep. Um, I'm surprisingly the only one on that list that I knew was the Kansas City Monarchs. Yes, and they ended up becoming huge. Yes, they did. Um, well, Andrew Rube Foster, uh, as the founder, became the Negro National lead president and he controlled the entire league from who the teams played for where the teams played how they got their equipment hint it was through foster they had to buy it from him i mean that's smart business yes he that's kind of like what spalding did yeah he was he was a brilliant businessman sounds kind of like he was the black spalding yeah essentially that's essentially that's awesome and he also, um, because he was in charge of the entire league, he gets 5% of all gate receipts. Excuse me? 5% of all gate receipts. Y'all got any more of them 5%? Sorry, I just <laughs> definitely smacked the hell out of my mic stand. Y'all got any more of them 5%? Like, <laughs> he was brilliant, and he made a fortune doing uh. this. That is one smart man. Yes. Um, the Negro League continued, and it f- 
flourished in the 1920s. Um, and it lasted up until 1932. Um, and it ended up shutting down because the Great Depression. And next episode, we'll talk more about the Great Depression and its effect on baseball. And we'll get into uh, World War II as well. Oh, yes. I can think of... I can think of several things about World War II. We're also going to kind of skip back a little bit just because there wasn't enough time and so much. We kind of spoke briefly about the 20s, but we didn't touch. We mentioned Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and whatnot. We're going to we're gonna go back and... We're going to go back and bring them and give them the time they deserve. Yes. Um, that was a very weird that, noise. That was my watch hitting the mic stand. I'm sorry. Um Anyway, uh, I think that's going to be about where we cut off this week. We're pushing an hour and a half. Yep. So, um, yeah. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter. Tweet at us. Uh, I, th- I think it's at Jokers Squared. J-O-K-E-R-S-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D. Yeah, that's good for somebody who's terrible at spelling. <laughs> Um, I can win a spelling bee, y'all. And please give us uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts. It'll help drive us up the charts, and maybe we'll get better at this, and uh, it'll become a thing. I would really like that. If I was a better host, I would have known that. I did not know five stars drove us up the thing. Yes. I'm going to go rate us five stars. Yes. Rate us five stars Sweet. everywhere you can. We're we're great. Um, also, uh, if you want to get in contact with us, send us any kind of suggestions for future topics or maybe some information that we left out or that you, you know, even shoot, even a name suggestion, Mm -hmm. shoot us an email at, uh, or if we got anything wrong. Yeah. If we got anything wrong, just let us know what you might want to hear or shoot us. Like I said, a name suggestion. We've got an email jokers of the squared table. No, is it jokers of the squared table or at the squared table? I'll have to double check this now. Y'all got me second guessing. Um, it is Jokers of the Square Table at gmail.com. So shoot us an email if you want to hear anything. And don't forget to smash that subscribe button and like button and give us five stars. Yes. Um, and send us money if you want to advertise. We would love sponsors. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I was supposed to throw out. Um, if you're in Charlotte and you want to try some of the best craft beer out there at any of the breweries, and if you have celiacs, check out Armored Cow and University. They have gluten-free beers. I have not found a beer there I don't like, and I'm not a huge craft beer person. Delicious. Speak oh. of the devil, what kind of craft beer do you like? Oh, that's right. Uh, do you like craft beer? I I. We'll go to Armored Cow and try some, and I will start liking it. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that's us, guys. Um, I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. We're... Maybe the Jokers of the Square Table. We also might be down the rabbit hole. <laughs> we're something. <laughs> we'll let you know. Yep. All right. We're out. See y'all. Bye, guys.